Guys, before getting to the message, let me put a plug in for serving at the uh, neighborhood night out. Um, Nancy McCune, you want to raise your hand for just a second? So Nancy is one of our good friends. She's in our home group, and Nancy's part of Lion Lamb Church because she got to know us at the neighborhood night out. Nancy was a neighbor down the street. What's that? Best thing she ever did. How's that? <clears throat> the, the organization that provides food and the truck and that the neighbors who sort of keep this whole ball rolling still rely a lot on us for the manpower. It's cooking food, serving food, staffing the building, simply being available to make this thing happen. So it's an event. It's one evening. It's well worth your time. If you can serve at all, I'd highly encourage you to sign up for that. Okay. How many were here last week? How many here remember how we started last week? Wow, yeah, right? Great song. Bob Dylan. Memorable. I was chagrined. I was shocked at how many of you knew not only Bob Dylan, but you knew the song. But we talked, right? We opened a three-week short series with that Bob Dylan song called You've Got to Serve Somebody. And you remember his story was that he had recently come to faith. That was in 1979. He'd sort of been on the skids professionally, Here's the gospel, embraces the gospel, and the first song of note that came out of that, that he was known for at least, was that song, You Gotta Serve Somebody, won a Grammy for it. And the whole theme of that was that it didn't matter who you were, what you did, where you were, when you were, that you were either serving, whether you knew it or not, you were either serving the devil or the Lord. You gotta serve somebody, it might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you still gotta serve somebody. It doesn't matter your stage or manner of life. Because we're creatures, we're not created. We're not creators, we're creatures. And so under the ultimate authority of God himself, we said that there's a hierarchy God's instituted and there's levels of authority and we're called to live under those levels of authority. One of those authorities that God has granted to be at work in the world today is the God of this world, Satan, the spirit that is at work today in the children or the sons of disobedience. And the gist of his song was, pretty much, if you aren't consciously serving the God of heaven, the Lord, you're almost certainly serving the God of this world, Satan. So we wanted to simply own up, fess up, that when we choose, especially consciously, not to honor God, not to put him in his things first, what we're really doing is choosing to serve the God of this world. We simply want to own that, right? We all sin in many ways. We're not trying to heap coals of guilt on anyone, but we do want to be honest about what we're saying and what we're doing when we choose to walk away from the Lord. So with that in mind, this is uh, the second in this message on authority and submission. So the story goes like this. The, the distraught patient uh, goes to his counselor, lays on that cushy, nice couch, and he says, uh, I need you to help me get in touch with reality, but I want you to break that connection fast if I need to, okay? Get me in touch with reality. Guys, this is a joke, okay? So get me in touch with reality, but in case I don't like what I see, break that connection fast. So last week we were talking about simply the fact that you are serving somebody. As creatures, we are serving somebody. Today we wanna to get in touch with this. We wanna do some kind of reality check, reality test for ourselves about where we are and where we are not serving the Lord. And it kind of goes like this. There's two different ways, 
two primary ways this works itself out. You and I might say to ourselves, you know, I know adultery is a bad thing. Adultery is really a bad thing. So I'm not going to do that. God doesn't want me to commit adultery. I'm not going to do that. But there's some other things that I don't think are that big a deal to God. They're not that big a deal to me. So I'm going to kind of do what I want. And so in some areas of our life, what we're really doing is we're saying, God's word on this isn't that big a deal. I minimize. I give reasons. I justify. I give myself excuse for not living subject to God consciously in some area of my life because I minimize it. I say it's really not that big a deal. That's one thing. Time to be at church, Joe. <laughs> the, the, uh, the other thing um, is, is uh, this. Sometimes, uh, maybe you've had these conversations. You talk to someone and they think, let's say they're not a Christian, but they think they and God are okay. And they think that because of ignorance. Sometimes you can talk to a Christian and you know their life's not in order, but they think they're okay. And why is that? Well, well, it's because they're not taking their authority, their cues from God and God's authority, which is primarily his word. And so out of ignorance, they think that I'm okay. But it's, I, I only think I'm okay because I'm taking my cues from someone other than God and from the authority of his word. So this morning, all I want to suggest is we, we lay on that nice soft couch and we work through some questions. We look at some arenas of life simply to do a reality check for ourselves. In my life, and this is specific to those realms of authority and submission because that's the, that's the focus of everything we're talking about. We're looking at areas in which we're called to submit primarily and we're using that as a reality test for whether or not we're submitting ultimately to God. Here's an example of why we're bringing this up. This, this chart I'll mention in a minute. I won't start with that. But, but uh, in 2013, Pew Research uh, did a poll of white evangelical millennials. And millennials, I'm not beating up on you today, okay? I'm just starting here, but we'll go from there. Uh, 43% of white evangelical millennials supported same-sex marriage, okay? Four years later, last year, 51% of white evangelical millennials said same-sex marriage is okay. Now, Mark Regnerus, who was coordinating with that study, also noted this. In that demographic, if the white evangelical millennials that were part of that study, if they went to church regularly, that's the qualifier, if they went to church regularly, only about 11% said same-sex marriage was okay. So th think through this for just a second. On one hand, you have, these guys are evangelicals. Now, statistically, when the, the guys doing the polls say that, they've already checked off a number of things for these folks. These folks are saying, I believe in God, I believe in the Trinity, I believe in Jesus, I believe in the Bible, I believe something about salvation, okay? So we would say they, they hold an orthodox view, big picture, of the faith on one hand. On the other hand, they are saying, they are affirming something that absolutely goes against the authority of God and his word. And so we say on one hand, look, there's a kind of schizophrenia going on here. The only authority they have to say, I believe in God, the Trinity, Jesus, the Son, the Bible, is the authority of the Bible. So on one hand, they're claiming and they're being informed by the authority of God's word. 
On the other, they're saying same-sex marriage is okay, which is anything but supported by God's word. You see what I'm saying? So they're saying two different things out of both sides of their mouth. And guys, for most of the part, these guys are caring, loving people who just want to be nice to everybody around them. But the problem is their view on this is not informed by God and his word. So if you, we sit down with them on the couch and we do a reality check, what we want to help them see is you're living in one part of your life under the authority of God's word and the rest you're not. Now the graph here, and I bring this up just to show so that we're not picking on millennials. It, I don't know if you can read this graph or not. It starts at 2001, it goes to 2014. White evangelical Protestants, black Protestants, Catholics, white mainline Protestants, and unaffiliated. All these folks believe in God. And if you look at the trajectory, every one of those is going up, and the question is same-sex marriage. So it just shows millennials aren't alone in this. The numbers are higher for that group. But everybody in these religious groups, the trend is going up that we affirm same-sex marriage is okay. And I am, by the way, I'm not... Uh, I had a brother that was homosexual, died of AIDS. I'm not banging down on homosexuals, okay? We're all sinners, I get that. We're not saying that. It's just that you've got people who on one hand say, we believe in God and the God of the Bible, also saying we believe in something that God absolutely condemns. How do you get there? We're not in touch with reality. And that's really what we're looking at this morning. So religious groups across the board are all affirming more and more fully something that God does not affirm and in fact speaks against. And so we say there's a disjoint from reality on this. There's a kind of spiritual schizophrenia, if you will. So I wonder if it's possible. Is it even in the realm of possibility that people like us, evangelicals, we're evangelicals, we're in Bible-believing church, I wonder if it's possible for any of us to have little corners of our life or maybe big fields of our life that are in fact not subject to God's authority. Ultimately, God himself, but also the derived, the delegated authorities he's put in place over us because we're all called to be in submission to the authorities. That's what we looked at last week that God's established. So perhaps for you and I, maybe we've got something to work on too. That's what we'll look at this morning. So we're in week two of our series, Authority and Submission. And so we want to ask ourselves some questions along this line this morning. What's informing my thoughts and my desires? We're going to look through these categories of authority and submission sort of as our acid test, right? Of, of, are we consistent or are we practicing a form of schizophrenia? What source am I taking my cues from? Those evangelicals that support same-sex marriage are taking their cues from someone other than God and from some source other than God's word. Who or what is effectively, effectively my authority? And guys, talk is cheap. People will say almost anything. It's not what people say, it's what they do. What's the difference between what I say, what I affirm, and what I do? Or in the, fact, in the case of same-sex marriage, what's the difference between what I say in one area and what I say in another. Why are those things disconnected? So that's what we're looking at this morning. I hope you have a study sheet too. So we're going to go through these levels, these lines of hierarchy and authority. It's from a picture from the Sistine Chapel. So the first question is, uh, who should submit to God? Now, when we say God or, or God's otherwise unidentified, especially in the New Testament, we're talking about God the Father. 
So guys, here's, this is the softball question this morning, okay? Who should submit to God? Everybody, right? Everybody. When should everybody submit to God? All the time. Are there any exceptions? <laughs> there are no exceptions. Okay, just to be clear, right? Now, how do we get there? So all of us here just said everybody should submit to God. Everybody should submit all the time. How do we get there? Now, probably some of you have read your Bible. I hope you have. Things like this come up in the Bible, right? Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those that live in it. The earth is the Lord's and everyone in it. Because you're a creature, you belong to God. You are God's. You're his property. You're supposed to recognize his ownership over you, and you're supposed to do what he says. Psalm 24.1. Ecclesiastes 11.9 says this, and I love the way it does, I love the way it says it. So Solomon, that wisest of man, says to Junior, sort of, he says, son, go and do whatever you want. Have a good time. And juniors, you can imagine juniors, oh yeah, great, thanks dad. And then he says, but realize this, God will bring every act you do into judgment. It's like, wow, that's the qualifier. Why should everyone submit all the time to God? Because God's gonna sit in judgment on your life. That's why. Because he's not only your creator, he's your judge. And last, and these are short lists, obviously. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul's talking about idolatry. And he says, for us, in contrast to the Gentiles with all those myriads of gods they worship, he says, for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Paul says, you've come from God, you exist for God. Who should obey God the Father? All of us. When should we obey God the Father? All the time. We're his by creation. We're going we're to give an account to him as our judge. We're from him and we're for him. That's pretty easy, right? Softball. Doesn't mean that we do it, but as a concept, it's clear. Let me ask you the next one. Who should submit to God the Son, the second person in the Trinity, who in the incarnation, now we call Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. So who should submit to Jesus? Everybody. And when should we submit to Jesus? All the time. Should Muslims submit to Jesus? <laughs> Buddhists, Taoists, animists, spiritists, you name it, right? So why do we say that? So we're all on the same page, right? Softball questions. Why do we say that? On what authority do we base that? Well, things like this. Colossians 1.16 says, By him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. Same thing is true of Jesus that was true of the Father. He is your creator. You were created through him and you're created for him. We owe him that. Why should we obey God the Son? Because he created us. Second one, again, on a short list, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 20, and 7, chapter 7, verse 23 say the same thing. You were bought with a price. In your mind's eye, see this. When the Corinthians hear this, this is a vivid picture. In fact, if you remember the Old Testament book of Hosea, this is the same image. What does it mean in that time period to be bought with a price? It's a slave market. So imagine Hosea purchasing Gomer, or imagine back in those times, here's a slave market, somebody is up for sale. That's the picture. And who has come along and bought you back? Who has redeemed you, of course, with the price of his own life, his own blood? 
Jesus, he bought you. If you're a believer, he has purchased your life. You're his by redemption. Why should I obey Jesus, God the Son? Because he created me and because he bought me. I'm not my own. I'm his by redemption. And last, like God the Father, 2 Corinthians 5 says this, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 3 says the same thing. When you and I as believers die at some point, hard to say how all this fits together in eternity, you're going to stand before the Bema seat of Jesus Christ and you're going to give an account for your life. This has nothing to do with your sins. If you're a Christian, every one of your sins, past, present, future, already covered, right? But Jesus reviews our life and he shows the things that he can reward us for. So why should we obey God the Son? We say, well, he's our creator, he's our redeemer, and we're going to stand and give an account to him. So all of us should obey Jesus all the time. So far, so good. Now, back to authority and rationality and reality check. Guys, on what authority do we tell ourselves or anyone else they should submit to God the Father and God the Son? On what authority? This is sort of another softball question. I hope you know the answer because we've been citing it. What's the authority? It's God's Word, the B-I-B-L-E. The authority that we point to for ourselves or for others that they should submit to God the Father and God the Son is the Bible. It's the authority of God based in His Word. Now, I bring this up now for a reason, because we'll put this to practice here in just a minute. Is it any less important for you and I, let's say kids, if you're a child living under your parents' roof, is it any less important for that child to obey their parents than it is for them to directly obey God the Father? Is there any less importance there? And the question is no. So the question then is, well, why? Well, because the command to obey the parent is the same source as the command to obey God. And we looked at this last week. If I choose to willingly not submit to rebel against an authority God has placed in my life, I am in direct rebellion against God. Why? Because I'm ignoring or refusing the same authority that tells me to obey God. It's the authority of God in his word that's the issue. So you and I, we're practicing a form of schizophrenia. We need to sit on that couch. We need that reality check. If we don't recognize that to refuse to submit to any lesser delegated authority is no different than saying to God personally, I refuse to submit to you. And guys, as Americans in the democratic republic that we live in, the land of the free and the brave, we have taken, I believe, the form of rebellion to a heightened level, a very refined sense of things, because we justify a rebellion all the time in all sorts of ways. We mask it, though. It's either out of ignorance or we justify it as unimportant. But the point is this. When we sin against lesser authorities, we're sinning directly against God because we're refusing the same authority that tells us to obey God and Christ. Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word or your law. So God wants us to be like him, holy. How do we do that? How do we submit to God? By his word. John 17.17, 17, when Jesus is in the upper room praying for his disciples, in the moment and for you and I today, 
He said, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And if we unpack that even just a little, sanctify, set them apart, make them holy, take them away from what they shouldn't be, make them fully what they should be. And Father, you're going to do that by the truth, and it's your word that's truth. So guys, the authority that you and I are facing, when we say, yeah, of course we should obey the Father, the authority is exactly the same when we tell a child you should submit to your parent. There's no difference whatsoever in the source of the authority. Now, we're going to proceed to look at some lesser authorities. And before we do, I want to qualify this. When we talk about obedience as sort of a complete given, uh, everyone wants to jump on exceptions. Yeah, but when should I not? So I'm starting with the exception, okay? So we cover the exception, and then we roll through. When should a person not obey, submit to, an authority God has placed in their life? Are there cases when that's, that's what we should do, disobey? Absolutely, absolutely. So briefly, in Acts chapter 3, Peter heals a lame man. It causes a commotion. Peter comes before the high priest and the Jewish Sanhedrin, and they say, what happened? And he says, it's in the name of Jesus this man walks and is complete today. Remember, the high priest and the Sanhedrin had Jesus crucified. They don't want to hear this. They'd hoped to put this thing to rest. Now here it is resurrecting in their very midst. They say, listen, this is the deal. We don't want you talking about this Jesus guy anymore. So get out of here and quit doing this. Well, of course, they don't. The church prays. It says the word of God goes out with power, and they're called back in chapter 5. And the Jewish high priest, now remember, these guys are Jews. They don't know that God's starting something entirely new. They sort of do, but they don't get it at this point. They're subject to the high priest. They're subject to the Jewish Sanhedrin. They are both the spiritual authority, and in many, many ways, they're also the civil authority. So the authorities that they live under have called them forward and said, don't preach in his name. We told you. And to that, Peter says, Acts 5.28, he says, we must obey God rather than men. Now understand what he said. The authority says, we, we, re we require you to stop doing something. They say, we can't. Why is that? Because the authority required them to stop doing something God commanded them to do. Matthew 28, Jesus told them, you proclaim the gospel. Start in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. So you've got an instance here in which an authority is forbidding what God required. The authority forbids what God required. Peter says, we've got to obey God instead of men now. Now, later on, very briefly, in early church history, if you were a Christian, you got arrested, one of the things that typically occurred was they would tell you, we'll let you go if you'll do this. If you'll swear allegiance to Caesar as God, you're okay. We don't care if you serve Jesus, but you have to acknowledge Caesar as God. So here the authorities, remember, this is the Roman government. This is the authority on earth God established. The Roman government now requires something of these Christians God forbid. Early Christians, you know what they did? They said, can't do it. So this is the exception. If the authority that we are normally otherwise submissive to requires what God forbids or forbids what God requires, we disobey. It's not a decision to make, it's a given. It's what we do. We obey God rather than men. So that's where we're going. Okay. So every authority 
short of what we've already talked about, is a delegated derived authority. It's not the same as the Father and the Son in the sense that they'll always get it right. Right? Every subservient authority, every human authority is going to get things wrong. Sometimes, occasionally, we're not going to obey because we're, we're required not to. But that's going to be the exception, definitely not the rule. So guys, um, buckle in, and let me ask you this first question. Swallow hard, think about it. Who should submit to church authorities? To pastors? To elders? Deacons? Staff? Who should submit to church authorities? You know what? My prediction is you guys will not have the same level of enthusiasm in answering this. Nor will it come across in the same way as God and the Father and the Son. Who should submit to ecclesiastical authorities? Anyone living in that church? Can, can we agree on this? Yeah, and I'll back it up here in just a second. When should we uh, submit to the church authorities in that church that we call home? When? Always. You guys are sitting there thinking, you're out of mind helping. Probably am a little bit. On what authority can I say that? On what authority can I stand up here and say, and by the way, it, it can sound self-serving, can't it, for a church leader to say you should obey the church leader? But you know, I had no problem telling my girls, you will obey me. And this is a different relationship, but I would be a coward if I didn't get up here and say the same thing. And I shouldn't be up here at all. So listen to this from Acts 20, verse 28. Paul's talking to the elders from the church at Ephesus, and he says this. The Holy Spirit, God, the third person of the Trinity, has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. Now, that's a pretty powerful statement. And by the way, if you're a church elder, you know, when God says you're responsible for the church Jesus paid for with his blood, you know, it's kind of a heavy thing, right? And anybody that's willing to take up being an elder, a shepherd in the local church, you better do so with some cringing, some reflection, some sense of what this is all about because the church Jesus bought with his own blood. This is no small thing. But notice what Paul says. Did the Holy Spirit speak from heaven and say, Mike's an elder or Joe's a pastor? That's not the way it worked. If you read in Acts, in the missionary stories, they went back to cities in which the gospel been proclaimed and they established elders. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. I'll talk about these kinds of men. They should desire the work. These are the kind of men you appoint, okay? But in that process, Paul says it was the Holy Spirit that made those guys elders in that local church. They are God's appointed representatives. That's the point. Hebrews 13, 17 says this. This is one of the clearest verses in, in all of the New Testament on this issue of submission to authorities in the church. The writer there says, obey, and that means listen to, believe, or consent to your leaders and submit to them, give way to them, yield to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those will have to give an account. There's no ambiguity here. And guys, I'll just tell you now, when you talk about uh, women's submission to men, that's a real dirty word. Those are fighting words in the church. And what you'll see is you would not believe the number of articles, papers, thesis, commentaries that argue back and forth on this issue of male and female relationship related to authority and submission. It's the most combative element of any of these relationships of authority and submission. The one with church leaders, it's simply neglected. 
We don't talk about it because nobody presumes it means anything. We don't do it. It doesn't rise to the level of discussion, much less disagreement. Now, one of the things that's gone on in the last few decades, as you know, there's been all kinds of church leadership failure, big time, right? Started in the Roman Catholic Church, pedophilia, still going on there today. But all kinds of Protestant leaders, generally around immorality, right? Big time, but also guys that are in it for the money they can get, 1 Peter 5, we'll look at in just a second, talks about that, abuse the relationship, right? Abuse the authority, absolutely. So there are times and there are leaders that we don't want to emulate. You remember what Jesus said in the Gospels, uh, do what they say, but don't do what they do. Sometimes your leaders are like that, even in the church. But who should submit to the church leaders? Everyone in that church. When should they submit? All the time. I will tell you, I've been in leadership in four churches in a little, almost 35 years. I know church leaders in other evangelical churches around the country, and I've never known a domineering leader of evangelical church pastors, elders, or deacons. I haven't seen them. The reason we don't submit to church leaders is not because they're domineering. And I'll tell you, if you're in church leadership, it's a given that people will not do what you say. It's a given. No, I'm not kidding. It's a given. We assume that. So that what you'll find church uh, evangelical leaders doing today is hoping to win people through influence. No one presumes people will do what church leaders say in evangelical circles today. Doesn't exist. Hasn't risen to the level of discussion. 1 Peter 5 is the last one there. Uh, Pete says to elders, shepherd the flock of God, exercise oversight. And by the way, in all of these passages, you have an implication that the leaders are required under submission to God and Christ to to fulfill that leadership role the best way that they can. Even in a culture and a time where people will not even acknowledge that leadership responsibility. He says, don't do it under compulsion, do it willingly, not for shameful gain. Don't be domineering. In verse five, he says, likewise, you younger be subject to the elders. So this is probably for us, this is the biggest pill to swallow. I think this is the most outside the box. When I was thinking about this, I've. I was waiting for blank stares and, uh, and the, the incredulity looks on your faces. So you helped me with that, and I appreciate it. <laughs> so, okay, so church, church uh, leaders, ecclesiastical leaders. So how about civil authorities? Now again, guys, you know, the culture by and large is, is degrading. Morally, ethically, spiritually, the world is going down like this. So it shouldn't be a surprise that we see that same thing reflected in the authority structures around us. So again, we live in a time in which civil government has just been rocked time and time again by abuse or failure of those in positions of leadership. That doesn't preclude the fact that God's word, his authority calls us to submit to those authorities any more than it did for the early church to submit to people like Caesar Nero, okay? Or Pontius Pilate. So civic authorities, who should submit to civic authority? Anybody that lives in that jurisdiction. So, right, it could be your city, county, state, federal, for us here in the states, all kinds of levels of authority. Sometimes it's military, it's police. So there's lots of civic authorities. When are we supposed to submit to those civic authorities? All the time. All the time. That should be a given. All the time, based on what authority? God's authority, the authority of his word. 
I won't look at them this morning. Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, we looked at last time for the authority to do that. Uh, how about this one? By the way, next week we're going to look at the male and female relationships related to authority and submission. That's the most contentious one of any of these relationships for sure. So we'll spend a week on that one. Who should submit to an individual man? If he's married, his wife. And if he has children, his children. 1 Corinthians 11.3, there, there's a whole issue of relationships there. And Paul sort of simplifies it by talking in the levels of hierarchy. He says there's God the Father, there's God the Son, there's the man, and there's his wife. There's this hierarchical order. 1 Corinthians 11.3. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3 all say the same thing. Wives, submit to your husbands. In fact, it says, as to the Lord. 1 Peter 3, which we'll look at next time, uh, goes even further, but we'll save that for next week. So when, do, when, does a, when does a wife and when are children called to submit to a husband and a father? All the time. All the time. How about that next one? Who should submit to an individual woman? You, you little guys, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you. Yeah, uh-huh. Who should submit to an individual woman? Her children, right? Again, same authority. God's Word says exactly the same thing. Ephesians 6.20, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Colossians 3.20 says the same thing. I was looking in Luke 2 the other day. This is a big one, right? When Jesus goes back home from Jerusalem with his parents, remember he was a few days by himself in the city. They thought he was with them. He wasn't. They go back, they find him. And what does it say when he goes back home with mom and dad? It says he submitted himself to his parents. Now, guys, think about this. If you're a kid, this is the creator of the universe. Sweeping the floor because mom said so. Doing the dishes, taking the trash out because mom said so. Is that wild? God the Son submitted himself to Joseph and Mary. Absolutely. No different than we're called to, to submit to our parents. By the way, there's all kinds of ways that we're not shading these things, qualifying, sort of extrapolating what that might look like because there just isn't time to do that. But kids were obeying our mom. How about employers? <clears throat> How about our employers? When should we obey our employers? <laughs> yeah. Uh, who should obey an employer? An, an employee, right? Absolutely. When should an employee obey their employer? All the time. Or we, we could even qualify it and say when they're on the clock, when they're, when they're responsible in that employment, um, standing, absolutely, right? All the time. Ephesians 6, 5, and there's, there's two, two uh, qualifications on this one. When the New Testament was written, the culture and the economy was totally different than what we have today. Back in the day, you had the wealthy and the poor, generally, you had lots of slaves and bond servants, okay? Household servants. They, they were like members of the family. A lot different than the slavery we tend to think of in the, in the American South today or in the past. Um, so when he's not writing, Paul's not writing to employers and employees. That relationship was few and far between in the ancient world. But it's common today. So we're taking the closest commands we see in Scripture masters to bond servants and we're applying that to employers and employees it's relative comparison not absolute 
Ephesians 6, 5, and 8 say, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters, fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, as you would Christ. In other words, see your employer or your boss or your master as Christ. You're submitting to them in the same way you would Christ. Colossians 3, 22 through 25 says the same thing. Obey them in everything, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance. Now here's the other provision. I've had conversations with lots of people who are in an employment situation that's abusive in one way or another, presuming on people's time, abusive language, disrespectful behavior, you name it. And my, my advice to those folks is this, unless God has called you and you know it, that God wants you to stay in that abusive situation, disrespectful situation, get out. We're not bond servants. So employment is an agreement between an employer and an employee. It's an agreement. If you find yourself in a disrespectful, abusive relationship in employment, unless you know God's saying, I want you there for another purpose, leave. I don't encourage people to stay in harmful, disrespectful relationships, right? Sometimes we're required to for other reasons, at least for a period of time. That shouldn't be the norm, and we don't have to invite that. Get out. Go find someplace else to work. Now, question for you. Does any authority on earth, does any authority on earth, all the time act worthy of the submission of those under their authority? Christ-like servant leadership. Does that exist on the earth? It doesn't. How about this? Does anyone living under a level of authority who's called to submission, does anyone on the earth submit Christ-like humility all the time, 100%, doesn't exist. So we're acknowledging no one does this perfectly, but guys, this is the deal. If we do a reality check and, and our mind is consistent, God's word, God's authority, living consistent with that, we will err in the direction of the command, right? We're more submissive, not less. We're more submissive more of the time, not less. We err in the direction of the command. Now, I'm going to bring this up because this is a tangent, and I sort of apologize, but I wanted to throw this in at the end just to, to make a qualification. If we hear, so I look at my life, I do the reality test, and I say, man, I'm out to lunch. What I don't want to do is this. I don't want to fall into a kind of religious moralism. I'll do better. I'll buck up. I'll obey the command. I'll, I'll find a way to do it. Uh, some of that mindset can be helpful, but generally it's not. And this is why. Why do you and I consistently rebel against authority? Why is that? It's because we're rebels. That's why. You and I by birth have a sinful nature that cannot, it's Romans 8, 7, and 8, the mindset on the flesh, the flesh is that old nature you and I, we all have from birth, all the way back to Adam and Eve, our first parents. It's uh, the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to the law or to God. And listen to that, indeed it can't. Did you know your sinful self never, ever submits in a right way to God, ever? It's an impossibility. People who go to church and who are moral and ethical and unsaved, they're never pleasing God, ever. Why? Because rebellion taints everything they do. It's an impossibility to be otherwise. 
So when we do the reality test and we see I've got areas of my life in which I'm rebellion to God because I'm in rebellion to those delegated authorities he's put over my life, what I want to say to myself is, I'm walking in the flesh. I don't say do better, think better. I want to do what Scripture tells me to. And it's this. This is Galatians 5. In Galatians 5, Paul says you've got the flesh, old sinful nature, can't please God ever. And you've got the new life that you've got by rebirth. We've trusted in Christ. We've been born again, born from above. John 3, Nicodemus, that conversation, you've got to be born again. We have a new nature. And guys, this is the deal. The old one can never do anything but sin. The new one can never do anything but righteously. It's Christ's own life. So Galatians 5 says, if you'll do this, you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. You won't live rebelliously. You won't live spiritually schizophrenically. You'll be on the couch in your right mind. What does he tell us to do? He says, walk by the Spirit. He says, be led by the Spirit. He says, when you're led by the Spirit, the very fruits of the nature and character of Christ will be yours. And not only will you have love and joy and peace, but guys, what you'll find is this too. When you and I live in rebellion, there's always an angst in our life as, as believers because we're at odds with our Father. We're at odds with the Spirit. We're grieving the Holy Spirit when we live unsubmissively to authorities. What you'll find is if I walk in the Spirit and I embrace the call to submission, what you'll find is joy and you'll find liberty. You won't find that somehow I've got this huge burden on my back. What you'll find is a burden has been lifted. So Paul doesn't say be more religious, go to church more often, say more, off, say more frequent prayers. He says walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. When you do that, you'll see the fruits of the Spirit. If you live by the Spirit and if you keep in step with the Spirit, what do you think God wants us to do so that we're in our right mind, we're living consistent with the authority of His Word? He wants us to walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, live in the Spirit. We'll see the fruits of the Spirit. That's the thing. So you've got some homework. You've got a homework assignment, and I seriously hope you'll take this home and do it. It'll take you just a couple of minutes. Read through that and just circle the ones that apply to you. Okay, just circle the ones that apply to you. This is the reality check. This is a little one. And, and right, we're just talking about relationships of authority and submission. Just take that home and go through it quickly and see where you stack up. Prayerfully, honestly, what's that look like? And when you see an area that's inconsistent with the authority of God's word, we don't beat ourselves up. We confess it. We say, Father, I see another area of sin. And by the way, that'll be going on until we die, until the Lord calls us. Lord, I repent. Show me what honoring you in this looks like. Help me to walk by the Spirit, and I won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. Okay. I think we're good. That's a mouthful. By the way, I've cut this down as briefly as I could. So, Lord, um, thanks for the humility of Jesus and just the example he is, not only as the ultimate benevolent authority that we are so thrilled to know and have, but Lord, is the ultimate example of humility and submission that's liberating, that's God-honoring. Father, would you help us to shed the culture of the world around us, the temptation from our own sinful selves to rise up in rebellion against you in one way or another. Would you help us to be sane and clothed and in our right minds? Would you help us live consistent with the authority of your word 
in every relationship we have. In Jesus' name, amen.